questions and answers. For nearly three decades, studies have shown that young people are exiting the church in droves. Some statistics state as high as 80%. What are some reasons for this exodus? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Join Pat now as he interviews Dr. Doug Potter on a recent study presented by the Barna Research Group, addressing some of the reasons for the exodus of millennials from the church. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, statistics have shown for nearly two decades that young people are exiting the church in droves. Some statistics state as high as even 80%. Well, what are some reasons for this exodus? To help us address this issue is Doug Potter. Doug earned his master's and doctorate in apologetics at Southern Evangelical Seminary. He is a writer, a prolific writer, a teacher and speaker on Christian theology and apologetics. Dr. Potter is committed to maximizing every opportunity to prepare the next generation of believers to know what they believe and most importantly, why it's true. And he's written and published numerous books and articles. He serves on the faculty of Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Doug's a regular guest here at Evidence and Answers. So Doug, welcome back to Evidence and Answers. Hi, Pat. It's great to be with you and uh, very looking forward to talking about this very important issue. Yes, Doug, we're talking about an article from the Barna Research Group, an outstanding group that does a lot of research into trends in what's going on in Christianity and in the church today. And they wrote a recent article based on their uh, research on the Connected Generation Project. It was a partnership of the Barna Group and World Vision. And this survey, they surveyed more than 15,000 respondents across 25 countries and nine languages. And so it's a very extensive survey, and they came out with some startling results. Now, the title of their articles, nearly half of young adults with ties to Christianity say the church can't answer their questions. So, Doug, what about this study do you find interesting or alarming? Yeah, I was given the article to read, and actually the the first two statistics that they cited were quite alarming to me. They said that 47% of the respondents, and understand that, as, as you stated, all of these people have some connection with Christianity. Many of them were brought up in the church, or they converted to Christianity. They have some tie with Christianity, but they feel, 47%, that the church cannot answer their questions or their spiritual doubts about Christianity. And the second one is that a third of them say, only one third of them say that they feel deeply cared for by the people around them. Only one third. This is in the church. These are people who have been churched. That's a problem with knowledge, and that's a problem with love. And I think the church really needs to focus on those two things. That's why it was so alarming, such a wide-sweeping survey of these young people don't know answers to questions about Christianity and about their faith, and they don't feel loved and accepted in the church. Yes, and when we say young people, they were talking about millennials and Generation Z. And exactly who is that uh, age group there? 
Yeah, it's about age 18 to 35 or so, and it's a fairly large, at least here in the United States, it's a fairly large group, and a lot of these are moving, again, away from the church, that those that have been raised in the church that are in this age group are leaving the church. Those that were converted to Christianity are leaving the church, and again, this is just something that's very alarming, and the church needs to address this directly. Yes. Now, tell us, why do you think churches are struggling to answer people's questions? Yeah, I think it's a lack of the leadership having the knowledge and the will to do apologetics in the church to these people, and they're not seeking to get equipped to answer such questions. I'm talking about the leadership of the church. Therefore, they need to really bone up and get educated, get answers to these questions, invest their time and resources in education to get equipped to then take it to this age group of people in a way that they're going to understand and receive it, to do it in a loving manner, to do it in an accepting manner, to do it in a manner that will really engage them and answer their questions. Yeah, now, I think this is interesting. I mean, young people are internet savvy. They can simply go on the internet and get their answers. Great websites like at Southern Evangelical and here at evidenceandanswers.org. But they're looking for their leaders and mentors in the church to give them answers. Don't you find that interesting? Yeah, they want human contact. They want to be loved and accepted. Every human being does. And the Bible tells us that we need to love those who are in the church. And that's how the world will know that we are disciples, true disciples of Jesus Christ, is that we will engage them both in terms of needing to answer their questions and also loving them and accepting them with where they are in life and helping them along to grow in in their faith. Yeah, that's why, you know, as you stated, leaders need to bone up in apologetics and theology because yeah young people can go on the internet and get these answers but they're looking to dialogue they're looking to interact they're looking for meaningful discussion with you know their leaders and mentors in the church that's right you can't disciple someone on the internet you cannot disciple them by text messages and you can't disciple them by just preaching from the pulpit you have to get down with them and get to know them live life with them understand their struggles and their difficulties and be there for them as someone who will love them and this is what we see represented in the apostles especially the life of paul we see him laboring in love for the people that he is teaching and ministering to Yeah. And so, you know, when I'm going speaking around the U.S. and around the world, a lot of people ask me, you know, questions. And I'll say, well, if you read my article on this and they go, yeah, we read it. But they'll ask me the question that I've answered on the Internet so we can see what they're looking for is that package you're talking about. Truth and love. They want to see truth communicated to them in a loving way. And that's kind of, I think, what they really want. That's exactly right. I agree completely with you on that. Well, Doug, you know, what do you suggest churches do to help answer questions as well as produce leaders for the next generation that can do these things? I really think that the bottom line is they have to turn to subjects like Christian apologetics. They cannot be distanced from it. They cannot push it away. They need to embrace it. They need to themselves, if they are not or have not been educated in Christian apologetics, they need to find a place to do it like Southern Evangelical Seminary and like your ministry. They need to take an effort to do it, to take the time to do it, and to take it seriously because this is the only thing that is going to answer their questions. They have 
doubts uh, about Christianity. They have questions about Christianity. We've got to give them answers. We just can no longer say, read your Bible, believe and trust the Lord. We've got to give these believers I'm talking about answers to their questions, and that means the leaders have to be prepared to deal with the cultural issues and the concerns that people have about the world and about what's going on in the world, what's going on in their culture. We need to be able to address that, and in order to do that, we need to get ourselves prepared to do that, educated to do it, and to take it seriously and carry it through. Yes, you know, Doug, we've been in a post-Christian culture for a while, and now we are moving into what many people call a post-truth culture. So we've shifted from post-Christian now to post-truth. Tell us a little bit, I mean, what what does that mean to be in a post-truth culture now? Yeah, it's basically pure relativism is, I think, the best way to describe it. Modernism had to do with saying, well, it's at least worth pursuing truth. We may not get it, but it's at least worth doing. But in a post-modern culture or in a post-culture that doesn't recognize truth as something that's worthy to pursue, that's worthy to engage in, these individuals, they need to be shown what truth is. We need to start with the basics and deal with issues like what is truth, what is love, what are truth claims, what is the nature of truth, and to uh, show what all this is about and engage them where they are. Yes, because it's real difficult to go in there and disciple someone and say, let's go through the Gospel of John, or, you know, let's go through some lessons in assurance of salvation. When they're sitting there saying, well, I don't even know who has the truth and what makes us think we as Christians even have the truth. That's right. And, and, and to a certain extent, they view truth as something that is relative, that is something relative to the person or relative to time or relative to a geographic location. Truth is not looked at something that is absolute, true for everyone, all the time and everywhere. That being the case, we need to just deal with a basic definition of truth. You're right. Before we jump into the Bible, before we jump into studies, before we jump into any other subject, we just need to settle on this issue of what truth is and what it is not and the basic principles and definitions that govern it. Yes, so the young people that we're talking about here are just inundated from the media to their friends to their education in a post-truth culture that does not recognize that absolute truth exists. So they're inundated in that and we want to disciple them in the context of this post-truth culture. And so as you stated, apologetics is needed because that's the context in which these people are growing up and the challenges that they're facing. Yeah, exactly right. And it might be good to remind your listeners that truth is always what corresponds to reality. There is no other correct definition or even other definition of truth. It's always what corresponds to reality. And any relative notion of truth is ultimately going to be self-defeating because relativism asserts itself as being true for everyone, which is relying on a correspondence view of truth and relying on absolute truth, which makes it a self-defeating statement to say that all truth is relative or even all truth is perspectival for the person. This is a relativistic notion of truth that is ultimately self-defeating and cannot stand up to scrutiny. Yes, and so the Christian leader has got to be able to address that issue. Now, one of the premier statesmen of our time, Dr. Oz Guinness, you know, when I asked him, well, how do we turn the tide in what's going on in the culture today? And he said, well, the church needs to get her house in order. And I said, 
Great. What's one of the first things we've got to do? And he said, we've got to return to biblical discipleship, what Christ talked about. So, Doug, you know, what is discipleship and how should it be done? Yeah, the the word itself just means a learner. And Christ gave us the model where he had 12 disciples that he spent a lot of time with. Obviously, in the first century, in that particular context, they were with him all the time. They followed him around. They listened to his teaching. They memorized his teaching. And his teaching was not just with regards to knowledge, but it was also putting into practice, living life out and learning how to live life according to his teaching. And of course, we as disciples and under the Great Commission, as we go forward, we are to make disciples of the nations. And so we need to do this across cultures, but we really need to know people, engage with people, and develop relationships with people that are long-lasting so that we can implant in them the truth that God has given us, not only in his word, but also in his world, and to also do that in a context of loving them. And of course, love is always willing the good of another. So it's not always something that is emotional or something that involves our emotions. Certainly that is involved in it, but it is always willing their good. And sometimes willing their good is being tough with them. Sometimes we need to bring correction into their life. And we see this demonstrated in the Apostle Paul, where he would write to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church knows that he loves them, that Paul loves them, and yet he corrects them in terms of their lifestyle, in terms of the things that they're thinking that are wrong, and in terms of the things that the way they are living, which is also wrong. And so discipleship needs to be intentional. It needs to be relational. It needs to involve truth of God's word and world, and it needs to involve love. Yes, Paul writes in Second Timothy 2, 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. And so discipleship, as you stated, Doug, here, you know, it's literally the pouring out of one life into another. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and not only that, if you look at doing it across cultures or in other nations and things like that, it's very important to observe the culture that people are in. Here in the West, we tend to be individualistic, and that we refer to that academically as a low-context type culture, but we're very individualistic, and we kind of listen to teachers, we're kind of standoffish, and we don't have really good, tight relationships uh, with teachers. I'm speaking in general terms, not for any one particular church or group, but we just just tend to be that way. In other cultures, they are very relational. They learn by watching others and being related to others and living out life with others in a communal relationship. And we're just not like that in the West. And the issue with regards to those two is in the individualistic culture, we need to concentrate on building the relationships with people. But in the relational cultures where relationships are already there, what's lacking there is putting knowledge into that context, putting truth into that context, and giving them content to learn and to know and to grow with. Yes, Christ commanded us not to make converts, but to make disciples. And discipleship is really hard work. But in a lot of the churches I go into around the world, especially here in the West, one of the things we're failing to do is emphasizing discipleship. Why is that? 
Yeah, I think it does have to do with our individual culture that we live in. We tend to listen to our teachers as they talk and give us content, but we're not uh, building relationships with those teachers, and we're not really engaged in them and living out life and receiving correction for them for being their disciple and receiving correction to how we are living and what we are doing. That is something that in our Western context we need to be intentional about in terms of building those relationships. Again, I'm speaking in general terms with respect to this. I'm not talking about any one particular group or any one church. It's just the tendency that we have in our Western culture to be like that. Yes. Now, Doug, you mentioned, you know, truth and love, they go together. And you mentioned that there are five truths church could focus on to help. So let's take them one at a time. What are those five truths that the church oh, needs yeah. to focus? Oh, I, yeah. I, I think that the church today needs to start, and I have an order to them. I think we need to start with philosophy, and then we need to move to apologetics. We need to be able to move to the Bible itself, and then to theology, and then to evangelism. Probably the order is most important between philosophy and apologetics, but I think that those are the issues that the church can look to to be educated in, look to incorporate into their church life and to be able to find the truth from those areas and to integrate them into the life of the church and particularly into doing discipleship. Yeah, let's talk about that first one, philosophy. A lot of people get intimidated when they hear that word philosophy. They picture some old guy in a library or some guru on a mountaintop uh, meditating or something. You know, what do we mean by philosophy and how can a church engage in, in the discipline of studying philosophy? Yeah, philosophy is really important because it covers areas, it covers topics that oftentimes we don't think about a whole lot, but it covers things like the nature of reality, the nature of existence itself, and what is it that exists, and how does it exist? And we need to recognize that in philosophy, there is a demarcation between modern philosophy and what we might refer to as medieval and ancient philosophy, that is before the modern era of philosophy. And philosophy in the modern era, especially starting with Rene Descartes, becomes very skeptical. And this is really what the church needs to reject. We need to reject a skeptical approach to understanding reality, a skeptical approach to understanding how we know and what we know, and to begin with the certitude of the world itself. And this actually is where the Apostle Paul directs us. If you look at verses like Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he says that God has made it evident to all people that he exists because of the creation of the world, because the world that exists, and it's through the world, through reality that exists, that we can ultimately come to reason that God exists, come to a conclusion that God does exist. And this is a philosophical move on the part of the Apostle Paul. He's not referring to reading the Bible in order to discover the existence of God or to have some experience. He is moving up towards thinking about reality, thinking about the world, and then saying, look, a finite world exists, therefore an infinite, invisible God must have created it, not only in terms of the past, but must actually be holding it in existence right now, as Paul later says in Colossians, that through Christ, everything is held in being, held in existence. Yes. If you read, especially the writings of Paul, there's tremendous philosophy in it. He's, he's a tremendous philosopher, but not only in Paul, but in Jesus and the other apostles, too. You see a lot of good philosophical principles being exercised there that underline the truths that they are teaching. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And and we have a rich history of tradition with regards to a Christian approach to philosophy. We can go back to such figures as Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and learn much in terms of philosophy from them and incorporate that into the church. Everything from their understanding of existence to their arguments for the existence of God, all the way down to um, dealing with uh, issues in philosophy related to ethics and what is right and what is wrong in terms of the nature and people that exist in the world, what does it mean to be a good human being, and also relate that to uh, to the teaching of Christianity with regards to the fall of human beings and the sinful nature that we all have. All of this can be integrated together into a whole with regards to the understanding of the world and God's Word. Yes, and not only that, philosophy gives you a good understanding of logic that you need, because you need to know how to think how to discover truth and evaluate the evidence. That whole ability to discern truth from error and to examine evidence and what people call critical thinking, you know, really is not taught in school anymore. I didn't learn it until postgraduate school, until I got into the doctoral program there at Southern Evangelical. And then I realized, man, I had missed all these principles in logic and how to think and evaluate the evidence. I completely agree with you. The American educational system has really done a disservice in not starting logic and critical thinking very early in education. It needs to be there. I'm in the same boat. I did not take a logic class until I went to graduate school. And believe me, you don't need to wait that long in order to take a logic class. It is something that can be taught very early to secondary school students as well. And it's extremely important, as you say, to critically thinking about things and understanding. And you know, all logic Logic uh, starts with the law of non-contradiction. A, if A is true, then all non-A is false. This is where it starts. If Christianity is true, then everything opposed to Christianity is false. It's starting with principles like that, and you're right. We have to get that from philosophy, and that type of thing really needs to be integrated into the teaching that goes on in the church. Yes, you know, I'll give you an example. I was talking to a young man the other day who had left the church. We were talking at a restaurant and he had left the church and I was just sitting down. And I said, well, tell me about your journey. How did you come to the conclusion that you did? And he said, well, I realized that all religions are essentially the same. They all teach the same thing and, and, and they're essentially the same. And I said, where did you get that from? And he said, well, logic, reason and the evidence. And I said, well, tell me about it. What did you research? And he said, well, I read a book by a woman who had a dream. And in this dream, you know, she realized all roads, you know, lead to the one. And I said, okay, well, let's take a look here. Buddhism, there is no God. Christianity says there is a personal God who created all things. How can the two be true at the same time? The law of non-contradiction. Opposites cannot be true at the same time and in the same way. And he says, I reject the law of non-contradiction. And I said, how can you reject the law of non-contradiction? I said, is your statement that you just made true? And he said, well, yes. And I said, you just applied the law of non-contradiction. You know, that's, yeah, that's, that's great. That's exactly right. Yeah. Very good illustration. Yeah. And I said, okay, so basically you haven't studied the world religions. Where did you get this information from? And he said, well, you know, this woman, she had a dream. And I said, you're basing everything on a woman who had a dream. You know, and he thought about it for a while. And I said, what makes her dream any more true than like mine? Thought about it for a while. And 
you know, I'd realized that his ability to think critically really was not there. He was really basing it on subjective experience and the powerful testimony of this one woman who had a dream. You know, but he didn't know how to look at the evidence and to examine and, and to think critically through the issue. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good. You know, one thing I remember is when I stepped into Dr. Geiser's class on Christian apologetics, one of the first objections that he answered in that course was this notion that Christianity is narrow, is narrow-minded. It says that Christianity is true and everything outside of Christianity is false. But we have to realize that all truth is narrow. The pluralist that comes along, like the gentleman that you met that says, well, you know, all religions lead to God, is actually rejecting a narrow way. That's just as narrow an understanding of truth as Christianity has, because all truth is narrow. And if Christianity is true, then that means that non-Christianity is false. Everything opposed to Christianity is false. If pluralism is true, then any religion that is exclusivistic like Christianity is false. That's how the law works, and there's no way around it. Yes, and so, you know, I was just surprised at how one book, based on a woman's dream, can debunk this guy's Christianity. He had been in the church for two decades, and that one book debunked his Christianity so quickly just because he didn't have the ability to think logically. And that's where philosophy can help our young people in helping them think critically and examine evidence and, and be able to discern what is good evidence and what is not, just what you're talking about. Yes, philosophy is just essential to integrate into the teaching of the church. for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call. That number locally is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.